Hi, welcome to Lighthouse Vineyard Church. Thank you for joining us. If you would like to know more about us, feel free to visit us online at lighthousevineyard.church. Enjoy the message. Hello, everyone. My name is Clint Schwartz. I'm the lead pastor. Thanks for being here today. Hey, we're going to start, jump right into the message uh, with another top 10. We're doing top 10s to introduce our messages this summer. So today's top 10 is the top 10 most loved foods in Indiana. All right? So you guys know what your favorite foods are right now? Go ahead and yell them out. Let me hear them. I just heard corn. <laughs> Give me some corn. Corn is on here, by the way. I'm super excited about that. All right. So number 10 is persimmon pudding. How many like that? How many of you have had that before? Like two. All right. Is it any good? Yeah. yeah. I guess it's a persimmon tree, I think, grows from Indy on down, like southern Indiana. So if you're from southern Indiana, I guess this is like a staple. You love it. And people love coming to Indiana for our persimmon pudding. Okay. Next, number nine. All right, you guys. A little more excited now. All right. Number 10 was scary, but number nine is exciting. Biscuits and gravy. Number eight, barbecue ribs. Yeah, we're starting to speak your language now. I can hear it. Uh, number seven, fried chicken. This is all... Indiana Staples right here, you know. Number six, country fried steak. Oh, anybody? Nobody? Yeah, yeah. Okay, we got some. We got some. All right. Number five is your good old sweet corn. We talked about sweet corn Charlie's. Is it out yet? Is it available? Yes. Rose, we got to get some sweet corn. All right. So anyway, moving on. Number, number four, sugar cream pie. Anyone ever had that while it's warm, like it's just out of the oven? If you, you know, you gotta, mm. I have a really good recipe for that if you want. Just send me a message later. Um, number three, chili. Yeah, everybody's like, this is nothing new. We just eat this every day. I guess this is different than like in Maine or California. They don't have the same list that we do. So this is just normal foods to us. Number two, pork tenderloin. I hear that uh, Penguin Point has a good pork tenderloin. I think that's the only good thing they have there, so that's what I hear. And then number one, one of my favorites is beef and noodles or chicken and noodles. Yeah, over mashed potatoes. Coma follows immediately after. Now that it got you all sufficiently hungry, I'm going to preach for another hour. So just hang on. Hang on. It won't be that long. I'll get you out of here early. Um, all right. So we are doing top tens to remind us of God's original top ten, which is the Ten Commandments. And uh, so we're taking the summer to walk through the Ten Commandments. We've taken the last several weeks to kind of give us a backstory. I've, I've in our staff meetings, called it the history of the world, part one, two, three, and today is part four. I promise we'll get to the actual Ten Commandments. If you come next week, we'll actually talk about the Ten Commandments. I'm excited about that. But I'm going to give you kind of a, uh, an overview of what we've talked about so far. So dial back in time to about 4,000 BC. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and then uh, and started to populate the, the world. And they became increasingly evil. 
So about 1,500 years later, 2,500 B.C., God decides to flood the entire world and start over with Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And so there was kind of a, a humanity reset that happened about 2,500 B.C. And then 550 years later, we hear of this guy named Abram, who became, becomes known as Abraham. And uh, God does a covenant with him and says, you will be the father of a nation. You'll be a father of a nation. So he's married to Sarah. They get to be about 100 years old. Sarah's 90 years old, and they still don't have this a child. They're childless, so how are they going to become the father of a nation? But the chosen, promised son arrives. Isaac shows up, and uh, we read about where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac, but Isaac was saved through all of that. And then Isaac grows up and marries Rachel, I'm sorry, Rebecca, and, uh, and they have two sons. They have twins. They have twins. They are Esau and Jacob. Esau, if you guys remember, is Esau means hairy because he was red and hairy, like really hairy, like a, like a goat hairy, everywhere, hairy. And so, um, but Jacob, his name means deceiver, and he deceives his father and steals Esau's birthright. You guys remember that? And so then he ends up kind of running away. And, uh, and, and, and works for seven years because he's so in love with this girl named Rachel. And on the night of his wedding, he gets deceived. Remember, the deceiver gets deceived. And uh, uh, he ends up in the next morning realizing he married Leah, which was the older sister of Rachel. So he says, I'll work another seven years. Just let me marry the love of my life, which is Rachel. And so that became a very dysfunctional family, right? We have, we have uh, Jacob married to two sisters, and he loves one and doesn't love the other one. And so they then end up becoming this huge, strange family. So let's take a look at this. This is kind of the family history. If you see Abraham and Sarah at the top, Isaac and Rebekah, and then we have Jacob, and he's married to Leah and Rachel on the two ends over here. But Leah starts having children. So she has the first four kids over here on the left. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Rachel decides, well, I can't seem to have any kids, so <laughs> Jacob, why don't you sleep with my servant, Billah? And so Billah has two boys, Dan and Naphtali, and Leah stopped having children, so she says, hey, Jacob, why don't you sleep with my servant, Zilpah? And so she has Gad and Asher. So now there's eight kids. And Rachel, you notice, hasn't had any children yet. So Rachel, one day, this is a strange story, but she goes to Leah and says, hey, can, can you give me some of this, these pods or whatever that your son um, harvested? And she says, well, if you let me sleep with my husband... Because I guess that Rachel had put an end to that. And she said, sure. <laughs> so she sold the right. This is weird, okay? And so then Jacob sleeps with Leah and has two more kids, Issachar and Zebulun. And then eventually God has mercy on Rachel. And Rachel has Joseph and Benjamin, the two youngest. And we read about Joseph because he was the favored son, right? He finally, they, 
that had waited all those years for the love of his, of his life, Rachel, to have a son, and she has Joseph, and the brothers hate him, and they sell him off as a slave. He ends up going to Egypt, but through a, a series of miracles, he ends up becoming second in command only to Pharaoh. And he saves all of Egypt from a famine and his own family. He saves them from the famine. And they end up moving to Egypt because Joseph has this really cool setup. He's second in command and I'll give you the best of everything. So his whole family, all these brothers that hated him at one time, love him now, and they all moved over to Egypt and they settled in there. Now you could say, well, that's the end of the story. The prince of Egypt, you know, the story's done, the movie's done, but it doesn't end there. Over the next hundreds of years, the Israelites, they're now called the Israelites because Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and the Israelites are descendants from Israel. But they begin to multiply. The Egyptians get jealous of them, and so they decide this is what we're going to do. We're going to enslave them and they will become our slaves. And that's what happened over the next several hundred years. And about 400 years into this, they start crying out to God. God hears their cries and sends them Moses to deliver them. And last week, uh, Pastor Matt talked about how God sent the 10 plagues and ended up delivering them um, from slavery in Egypt. All right, we're going to pick up there. You can turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Uh, I'm going to pray while you're turning there. So Father, we pray that you would teach us today as we learn the history of your people. Lord, I pray that um, these stories would just would, would come to life in our hearts and minds. And uh, Satan, we just come against you in the name of Jesus. You will not have your way in this place today. Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. Because God, I know that you have a message for us today from these stories. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So the very first plague, I'm sorry, the last plague, number 10, was the death of the firstborn. I'm going to read that. This is in Exodus 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. So there's all of this death that's happened in Egypt Israel, though, by the way, is protected because of the Passover lamb, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And the, the angel of death passes over the Israelites and only takes out all of the Egyptians. In the middle of the night, Pharaoh is so upset, he's so mad that his son died that he comes across to Moses and says, get out of here. He tells him to leave. Now, he's been hesitant, hesitant to do that over all through all 10 plagues, but he finally has had enough. It has now affected his family, and he tells them to leave. So in the middle of the night, Moses calls out to the elders and the people and says, pack your bags, it's time to go. And by the way, on your way out of town, talk to the Egyptians and ask them for things. Ask them for gold and silver and clothing. And so listen what happens. 
Verse 35 says, The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. So in the midst of all of that, they're leaving with, so they've got their freedom, and they've got a lot of money and clothing on their way out. Now, this was in direct response to a prophecy of God to Abraham 400 years earlier. This is Genesis chapter 15, verse 12, says this. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So verse 14 there, you see that? It says, I will punish the country they serve as slaves. That was the ten plagues. And afterwards you will come out with great possessions, and that's the gold and silver and clothing. Now, keep this in mind. This is a prophecy that was given to Abraham 400 years later. And it has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. People believe, most scholars believe, that the book of Genesis, where this is recorded, was written by Moses. So Moses had heard this 400 years later and recorded it in his book in Genesis. So this was not a new concept to the Israelites. So the Israelites who were enslaved, if you can imagine this, they're enslaved in Egypt and they recall this prophecy because it's being passed down from generation to generation. It says, we've been enslaved for 200 years. This prophecy says 400. This is going to be a long wait, you know? So then another 100 goes by and then finally they're approaching year 400. You can imagine the Israelites saying, this is when we get delivered. This is when we get delivered. This is when we leave this place and we have all of these possessions. And they began to cry out to God. They began to cry out to God. And God heard their cries. God heard their cries. They asked for a miracle and God delivered them. So here's a question for us to ask ourselves today. I just want to ask you, are you waiting on a miracle from God? Has it been weeks or months or maybe even years that you heard that God was going to do something or you believe that God was going to do something for you, but it hasn't happened yet? For the Israelites, it was 400 years. But God was true to his word, so they cried out. And that's my encouragement to you today, is if you're waiting on a miracle, don't stop crying out. Don't stop crying out. Get emotionally involved. Here's your feeling. God is moved by our cries. If you read on in uh, Kings and Judges, you'll see that the Israelites get themselves in a mess all the time. And uh, in the middle of that mess, they cry out to God, and God hears their cry, and, get them, and God delivers them. So that needs to be part of our 
walk with Jesus is just simply to cry out to God and say, rescue me. There's been some times when um, I've been in this building alone. I, I get the privilege of having a key to this building. And so there's been times when I've been here by myself and I've just cried out to God, cried out to God, cried out to God. And you don't have to be in a church to do it. Just, just cry out to God because he hears your cries. He hears your cries. I just want to encourage you on that. Now the children of Israel pack up and leave. Scripture says there are 600,000 men. That doesn't include women and children. So biblical scholars believe somewhere between one and a half to two million people leave Egypt at that time. It's the great exodus. Now their plan was to go back to the promised land where they had left, where Joseph and, and his, his 11 brothers had left, right, a long time ago. Go back to the promised land, the land that was promised to Abraham. So they were finally returning. Now, they didn't know how to get there. It had been a long time since they'd been there. They're just, they, they grew up in a, a, a lifestyle of poverty. That's all they knew. You know, they didn't know how to explore or follow the sun. They just were slaves in Egypt. So God led them with a pillar of cloud in the daytime, and at night, it was a pillar of fire. And the, the cl- easiest way to go is just like straight across into the desert and come on down. But God says, I cannot take you that way because um, the uh, Philistines are in that land. And if you run into a battle, I know you're going to get afraid and you're going to run back. I know, so run back to Egypt. So he takes them down to the edge of the Red Sea. Now, I want to show you a map of this. Hopefully, you can kind of see this. We have the Mediterranean Sea up above. We got the Red Sea down below. This is the Sinai Peninsula. So the Israelites are up here where that first black dot is up here in Egypt. And they come down. They could have gone straight over into the wilderness there and headed that way. But again, God says, the Philistines are there. I can't take it the short route. And so he takes them down here to the edge of the Red Sea. Now, this is actually the Gulf of Suez. All right, that's what that's called. And the Suez Canal uh, actually connects this gulf here up to the Mediterranean Sea. So you can kind of get an idea of where they're at. So they're camped up against this Red Sea. They need to get on the other side. That's where the promised land is at. Now, when they got there, though, Pharaoh decides, I want my slaves back. You know, they've gone a few weeks without having anyone make bricks or anyone to serve them or anyone to do anything. And he decided, why did I let them go? And he takes his whole army and he chases after them and pins them against the Red Sea. So you have one and a half to two million people camped out against the Red Sea, and all of Pharaoh's army is coming in against them. This is what the Israelites said. Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord, They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. This is 
the Israelites, this is their first real encounter with God. You know, is is these ten plagues and and uh, and the deliverance. You know, Pharaoh changes his mind and he and he makes it out. They, Moses leads them to the Red Sea. Their level of faith is pretty small at this point. Their first sign of trouble. They're they're crying out. They're they're complaining. All those kinds of things. But they have a leader, Moses, who has the faith of Abraham. Now listen to Moses' response, because I love this. He says, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. I love that response. I love that response, because in the midst of, of fear and trembling and complaining, there was a voice, a voice of strength, a voice of faith, and a voice that would lead them to victory. I believe today that there are several of you in this room who are called to be that voice for your families. You're called to be that voice in your schools. You're called to be that voice in the places that you work, in your neighborhoods, in your friend groups. See, there needs to be a voice. There were one and a half to two million people who were crying out and afraid of their situation. And there was one voice that was speaking the truth with confidence and with faith. We need to be that voice. We need to be that voice. I know that we had Father's Day just last week, and I didn't actually preach for the first time on Father's Day in, a, in several years. Um, but I just want to say to the men in here today, guys, be that voice. Be that voice in your families. Stand strong in faith, in, no matter what your circumstances, no matter what your situation is. My wife and I have had some challenging situations in the last few years, and and I remember God speaking to me and saying, your family is looking to you. How are you going to respond? Are you going to respond in fear and, and complaining and grumbling? Or are you going to respond in faith because they're all looking to you? Men, we need to have that unction within us that no matter what the circumstances are, we're going to respond in faith. We're going to respond in faith. Now, it took a lot of faith at that point. I will tell you, they were, they were trapped. They were trapped. The, the Red Sea, the, at that point, the Gulf of Suez, the average depth is 130 feet, and the width is 12 to 20 miles. Okay, so you think about, that's what they're up against, 12 to 20 miles of sea at a depth of 130 feet. Moses stands up. He puts his money where his mouth is. He prays to God. God tells him to lift up his staff over the sea, and it parts. This is what it looked like. Uh, this is just an artist's rendition, but something miraculous like this happened. There's a wind, and there are walls of water on both sides as Moses stands over it, and this great, fantastic miracle happens. There are a lot of modern-day scientists who, who try to make sense of this and say, well, it was just the tides. Something happened with the tides. He knew the tides. 
Guys, it was a supernatural miracle. Scripture says there were walls of water on both sides. That means there were walls of water on both sides. So they have to go across this, this dry land with water on both sides, and it's somewhere, again, between 12 and 20 miles. So if you think about walking at a pretty good pace, that's probably in this 5 to 10 hours, but you got kids and so on. So it's going to take you all day to get the children of Israel across this dry land to the other side of the sea. The Egyptians are being held off by this pillar of fire. It shifted from being in front of them to behind them, and it finally goes away, or they go around it, and they take off with their chariots into, this, into the sea and go after the Israelites. Now, they're gaining on them at some point, so God ends up plugging up their wheels. It says, the interpretation of it is that the Oh, where is that? That he clogged up their wheels. He, he frustrated them. And so as that happened, the, oh, he jammed their chariots. The, they, they can't get there, they're, but they're still trying to make progress. So they're running after him. They're trying to get to the Israelites. And once the Israelites clear the land or clear the, the sea, Moses stands up above them and the water comes back. This is Exodus 14, verse 27. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back in its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had survived, that followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on the right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. So they feared the Lord, put their trust in God and in Moses, their servant. They had seen this great miracle. So you would think... Moses now wasn't the only man full of faith, right? They had seen this huge miracle. And so everyone would be full of faith. And they would no longer doubt Moses and they would no longer doubt God. That's what we would hope. That's not what happened, okay? So we're going to move on. So they start heading back, you know, towards the land of Canaan, okay? And uh, they run into their first problem. The first problem is just three days later, they're out of water, and they come across some, some water, and, and it's bitter, and they start crying out and complaining, oh, you're gonna, we're going to die of thirst and all this. They're, they're just, they've lost all their faith in just three days. Moses ends up throwing, I think, some wood into the water, something like that. Anyway, it becomes clean, and they get pure water. Now, just a few days later, okay? Um, this, is, this is just a few weeks. It's 45 days after leaving Egypt. Okay, it's only been 45 days. They run out of food now. So they're out of food, and this is what they do. This is in Exodus 16, verse 2. It says, In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died at the Lord's end in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. You can almost hear it, right? This whining and complaining. 
Oh, we're out of food. God hears this. What do you think he does? Right? I mean, we have a lot of parents in here. What do you do when your kids whine at you? What do you do? You give them whatever they want. No. Sometimes grandparents do that. But no. Um, you shouldn't. Like, I mean, that's not the unction. You don't want to give them whatever they want. But you know what? God comes through for them. And he sends quail into their camp for them to eat that night. And the next morning, they wake up, and they see, what is this all over the ground? And it's manna, all right? We have kind of heard of the story of manna. Manna is actually, that word in the Hebrew sounds like the phrase, what is this? You can imagine, they just all came out and go, what is this? What is this? And that was manna, (laughs) manna. Now, manna was white and tasted like wafers made with honey. So God says, I'm tired of hearing them complain about food. So he provides manna for them to eat every day for the next 40 years. They never went hungry again because they had manna every day for the next 40 years. I thought, I thought it was interesting. The day that they crossed the Jordan River to go into the promised land, which was 40 years later, and they ate the food of the land was the last day that they had manna. So, but he provided for them the entire time before they made it to the promised land. Now they continued their journey. They ran out of water again. <laughs> they started to complain. It went to a whole new level. Exodus chapter 17, verse 3 says. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. I mean, this hasn't even been two months yet, you know, that they've been in the wilderness. And Moses is fearful for his life that they're going to stone him. Now, that's the, the time that God says, take your staff, hit the rock, and water came out. God continued to take care of them a time and time again. But you can begin to see this pattern of the Israelites. I'm, make, I'm making some fun of them, you know, like this whining, complaining, and, and I'm looking at them, I'm going, God, wh- why, why did you choose this, this band of misfits to be your people? I mean, they just, they, it hasn't even been two months since they've seen all of these miracles, and they continue to complain and continue to lose faith. And, and as I'm pointing my fingers at them this week, God says, oh, you think you're very different from them? Like, and God reminded me of when I run into a trial, what my first response is, Right? Is my response to be like, oh, Lord, you'll deliver me? Or is my response to go, oh, Lord, what in the world? This is, oh, did you see? I got, what? It's, uh. See, guys, I, I think that we're not too different than the children of Israel. It's really easy to be focused on the problems in front of us and forget about the miracles behind us. God has done some incredibly great things in our lives. 
I know many of you. I don't know all of you, but I know many of you, and I know some of the stories that you've told me of what God's done in your life. And I know the stories of what God has done in my life and in Rose's life and all the things that he's done for us. So here's a question. When you face these trials, what is your first response? What is your first response? Do a self-inventory. Do you grumble? Do you complain? Do you get fearful? Do you lose hope? And then I, you know, here, this next question is one I just want us to ask God. What should be my first response when I'm faced with a challenging situation? You know, God is the one who has delivered you in the past. God is the one who has blessed you. God is the one who has been with you in good times and in bad times. And so when you're facing a challenging situation, I know what God wants us, how he wants us to respond is the way Moses did. Do not be afraid. Our God has delivered us in the past, and he will deliver us in the future. And we can trust him, and we can count on him to be there for us. Here's your feeling. We are so blessed that God is so patient with us. I'm grateful for that. Our Heavenly Father is a much better parent than I ever was <laughs> or ever will be. So this week, maybe even later today, I, I just want you to take a moment, maybe in your daily Bible time, and just write down three things, three times that God has come through for you in the past. There may be three things that happened just this week, or it may be things that, that happened years ago. But just remind yourself of the faithfulness of God, because he is faithful. He is faithful, and we can trust him. All right, just a couple more things, and then we'll be done for today. The Amalekites end up attacking the Israelites. The Amalekites are descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. So the Israelites are descendants of Jacob. He stole the birthright from Esau, and his descendants, descendants the Amalekites, attack the Israelites. Nobody really knows why. It doesn't say in Scripture but a lot of biblical scholars believe it's because they are still holding a grudge against Israel and his descendants for stealing the birthright. thought that was interesting. Now, Moses identifies Joshua to be the commander of their army, and he sends them out to fight. And then he goes up on a hill and holds up his hands over the battle. This is Exodus chapter 17, verses 11 through 13. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. So you can picture that. As long as he held up the staff, they won. But he, he would get tired, and he put his, put his arms down. And then his army would start to lose. Now, what that means in a battle, if your army is losing, that means your soldiers are dying. So can you imagine the pressure that Moses felt? Like, I got 
I got to put him up. You know what I mean? And he just couldn't hold. I mean, we're talking about hours and hours of holding this up. And he, and as he would put it down, he would get tired. You know, he would watch his army begin to be defeated. But he had Aaron and Hur who came up beside him, sat him down, held up his arms for him. I think that's symbolic of the Christian life. Because there are times that we are in a battle. Some of you are in a battle. You've been in a battle for a long time. And you get tired. I've been there. You know, I've been there where I'm just like, I'm tired. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of believing. I'm tired of praying. I'm tired of crying out. And it's in those moments that when we give up, when we stop trying, we put our arms down and give up, we start to lose. We start to lose the battle. But the reality is we're going to get tired. But what we need, we all need an Aaron, and we need a her in our life. Aaron was his brother. Her, they believe, is his brother-in-law. They were close to him, and they came alongside, and they held him up. So here's your last fill-in. Don't give up when you're tired. Enlist some help instead. So here's a question. Who is your Aaron and her? Do you have one? Do you have both? Because we need those people in our lives. We are not meant to fight these battles by ourselves because we're going to get tired. So two, two points from that. First of all, if you don't have an Aaron and a her in your life, you need to find them. You need to find someone, and you need to trust them with what's going on in your life. Let them help you. We are not meant to fight these battles alone. I got three guys that I meet with once a month. They're my Aaron, her, and other guy. Um, but I, I meet with them, and, and, and we have one rule in those monthly meetings, and that is that I can't pastor them. That's their chance to pastor me. That's their chance to hold my arms up, to, to relieve me of some of what's going on in my life. And I love those times together. They're so important to me. But how about you? Do you have an Aaron and a her in your life to help you? Some of you, okay. Man, I'm talking to the guys, but it's not just the guys. Some of you, have too much pride in your life to let anyone know that you're struggling. And I would just tell you, that's not going to do you any good in this life. You need to be willing to let somebody else know that you're tired. It's okay to be tired. In this world, we're going to get tired. So some of you just need to let somebody else know that you're tired. And then others, God has called you to become and to be a Aaron and a Her to others. So that's how God has wired you. So look around at the people around you and offer your assistance to those that you know are tired. And it's okay to be behind the scenes. I don't know that we really even hear about her anymore. We hear about Aaron, the priestly stuff and all that. But her, I don't really hear about him. But do you know he was significant in them winning the battle? And it's very, very possible if they had lost that first battle with the Amalekites that they would have never made it to the promised land. So Hur was part of the 
incredible story of the Israelites and God's people. But he was just behind the scenes, just holding somebody's arm up. And God would just say to you, that's super important. So be a her, be an Aaron to the people around you. Now, after their victory, Moses builds an altar called Jehovah Nisi, meaning God is our banner. And they march on to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is where God gives them the Ten Commandments. So next week, we're going to actually start talking about the Ten Commandments. But I'm going to invite Rose to come up here. If you guys would all stand. She's going to lead us in a closing prayer. Well, that's it for today's message. We hope we helped you know God more intimately. If you feel our ministry is helping you spiritually, feel free to find out more about us at lighthouseofinner.church. Thank you for being part of our family, and we will see you next time.